Episode 6 of the BTB Project. I am honored today to interview one of my greatest mentors and Colorado tennis icons. He is a two-time All-American and two-time team NCAA national champion at Stanford University. His junior year, he was team captain and led the Cardinal to an undefeated season under coach Dick Gould. Played former world number two Michael Chang in the second round of the U.S. Open in 1997. At age 30, he reached top 100 in the world on the ATP Tour and in 2001 was inducted into the Colorado Tennis Hall of Fame. Founder of Tennis Evolution, a YouTube tennis coaching platform with over 105,000 subscribers. You'll be encouraged by his journey and inspired by his calling to be an executive coach and dynamic speaker. Jeff Salzenstein, welcome to the BTB Project. Don't be afraid of the dark. Be careful with stars. Not every light is gonna guide you, Welcome to the BTB Project, designed to empower listeners to identify their why and to live their best lives no matter the circumstances. My name is Coleman Gerhardt, a former athlete and motivational coach I've had the opportunity to inspire thousands through my story and help accomplish what they are built to be. You'll be encouraged by each and every episode, and let's get into it. Yeah, when I blow up, I'm a sore high like Peter Pan. In real life, be living all my dreams. If I'm waking up, it's in a foreign land. Jeff, it's an absolute privilege and honor for you to join the BDP project today, and welcome. Thank you so much for having me, and who would have thought that we would get together at the Pancake House and we'd be here right now talking shop. A hundred percent, and I think what I'm excited about is to have the listeners really kind of see the, the journey that, you know, one, we've been on individually, but two, how, you know, we've reconnected, as you've mentioned, and have kind of ignited a mission to continue to pay it forward to help as many people as we can. I kind of wanted to start with a little bit of a of a one-off to try to get your attention. So I'm going to pull up a photo of you. Can you see that photo? I see it loud. It's, it's clear, <laughs> clear as day. So for the listeners, you know, being a Colorado native, Jeff was by far one of the most motivating guys that I ever saw as a tennis player. And it really was somebody that ignited my passion and, and love for the game. As, as we know, the, the tour can be challenging and American tennis can, can have their struggles, but not too many people come out of Colorado. And so watching you do what you did was an incredible catalyst for what I was able to do as a player and as a coach. So I have a photo up right now of your 1997 match against Michael Chang at the U.S. Open. And I recall a few years back, I got to sit in your living room and watch a few cuts of this match with you. And at that time, you know, I just graduated college and was getting into coaching and you offered your time to me to, to mentor and support and, and teach me really everything you know. And I had to go back because I've watched this match about a hundred times, to be honest, because it just reminds me of 
what can be done despite any circumstances, right? And I believe we're certainly cut from the same cloth when it comes to that. But this picture in particular, Jeff, is you're in the first set against Chang, and I saw definitely some nerves those first few games, and all of a sudden you break Michael Chang and you're up 3-2 in the first set. And in this photo, you're smiling and you're looking to what I believe is, as the announcer said, your family. And that smile that you have on your face kind of, you know, I know we're going to be talking about tennis today, but it tells me a lot about how much family means to you and the support that you had through your journey. So if you don't mind, why don't you tell me a little bit about this particular match and what are your thoughts when you see this photo? Sure. Thank you for teeing it up for me, Coleman. It is a pleasure to be here and to kind of hear your perspective on this and this match and the impact that my career and this match had on you. Let's take you into the middle of the story. And as you're looking at the picture, it's 3-2. I'm up 3-2 in the first set. I just broke serve. You're exactly right. I was filled with nerves coming out for that match. This is, let me set the stage. It's a second round U.S. Open match. I'm playing world number two, Michael Chang. It's my first full year on the pro tour. My first opportunity on a big stage, a really big stage. I had played on big stages in college, but this was a whole nother kettle of fish. And um, I break Chang serve. And if we fast forward another 15 minutes, I mean, I'm playing lights out tennis from about 3-2 until 5-4 in the first set. And I'm serving for the first set. It's five games to four. And I got a big serve. I mean, my serve was my weapon, which we're going to talk about how that all transpired as well today. But I'm up 5-4. I'm serving 125 mile an hour bullets against Michael Chang, who's one of the best returners in the world. And I'm dominating him. I'm I'm literally for those 15 or 20 minutes once I broke serve, I'm I'm playing better than the number two player in the world. Legit. And I get to five four, I get to set point, and I'm a lefty. And as a lefty, you gotta have a great wide serve in the ad court. So it doesn't matter what the other guy can do. You bring your best stuff in the biggest moments. So I hit this wide slice serve about 110 miles an hour. I come in behind it. I'm a kind of a serve and volley. I serve and stay back to you. I serve and volley. Chang barely gets the ball back. I hit this beautiful backhand volley to the open court. Now my backhand volley was probably my second best shot because my dad taught me how to hit angle volleys when I was a kid. So it was almost like I was like all the reps in that one moment. I hit this backhand angle volley that Chang couldn't reach and I won the first set. And John McEnroe's on the call. He's announcing this match. And the crowd absolutely erupts. You've got 24,000 fans standing up. They're all pointing at me saying, where did this guy come from? I've got, this is a Friday night, Labor Day weekend. I got millions of people on watching on TV basically saying, who the heck is this guy? Where did he come from? We don't know anything about him. We're just learning in this moment. And I remember backpedaling, kind of walking back towards the baseline. And I was looking at my box when I won this first set. And you'll see on the TV, there's a slight smirk on my face, like like I've arrived, like, like I'm here. And what I tell people 
is that in that moment, the match ended. And the reason that the match ended is because the dominant thought in my head was, thank God you didn't embarrass yourself tonight. <laughs> yeah. And I think what that speaks to, and we're going to unpack this more around the mental game, around mental health, emotional health, believing yourself, having certain beliefs, having limiting beliefs. What that signifies to me is that in that moment, I was on the biggest stage and I was doing something so extraordinary that not many people in the world ever get a chance to do. And at the same time, my beliefs, my limiting beliefs, the things that held me back were very ordinary in the way that everyone struggles with limiting beliefs. So I think what makes me unique as an athlete, as a coach, as an entrepreneur, as a, as a speaker, as, a co- you know, as an executive coach is that I have these exceptional qualities or these things that I was able to accomplish. And at the same time, I can relate with heart that, that everyone struggles with limiting beliefs. And that limiting belief of, thank God I didn't embarrass myself, that's very different than, okay, I won the first set, now I'm going to continue to kick this guy's butt. Right. It's very different. I took the foot off the gas, and I lost the next three sets. It was an entertaining match. I signed with an agent the next day. Everyone <laughs> thought I was amazing. But honestly, that's when I took the foot off the gas, and that smirk and that smile and that moment was, was when the match changes and changed and shifted, and I, I went to my, my set point, my default, to what I believed that I, I could do. And so it's a great liftoff point for us to talk about more things around, you know, transformation, transition, limiting beliefs, things that hold us back and how we break through them. So thanks for giving me an opportunity to bring you into my world and and give you some insight into my thought patterns into probably the biggest tennis moment of my career. Absolutely. It was really awesome to hear you walk us through that because it just made me reflect back on to, to when I was a player and how many moments I had with limiting beliefs and especially early on in, in my childhood, you know, I started tennis pretty late at 14 years old and, you know, had a lot of matches where if I would just go out and, and hold my serve and get a break, no different than, than what happened with you and Chang in this first set, I almost felt like that was my victory, right? Instead of learning how to, to win tennis matches and, you know, I think it's going to be really important for the audience to to understand, you know, a little bit more about, you know, your junior career and, you know, the incredible path that you had as a player to get to this point. And I know, you know, at 15 years old, you had, you know, some some moments of, of, of reflection and transition. And can you maybe take us back to that moment when you're 15? Sure. Yeah, this is great to help you all understand my background. You know, sometimes I talk about again, kind of my life or my career and people know me as the two-time All-American or the Stanford or the top 100, what people don't know is what happened to get there, right? The steps that had to be taken and the adversity and the setbacks. Everyone just assumes when, you know, Stephen Curry or John Elway or Russell Wilson or any of these great athletes, they don't even know the behind the scenes of when they really struggled. Michael Jordan getting cut from his high school team to go on to becoming the greatest. And so by no means am I comparing myself to these elite athletes, but I think it's important to realize that when I was 15 years old, I'm two months shy of my 16th birthday, and I go play in Kalamazoo, Michigan, 
in uh, Mich- in Michigan, and I'm playing these guys in this national tournament, and I lost first round singles, first round doubles, and first round backdraw in my first round in my first year of the 16 and unders. So that's called a triple crown in tennis, and a triple crown in tennis is not a triple crown in horse racing. <laughs> And, you know, to lose all three matches without winning a match at the Nationals is defeating and deflating and humiliating and embarrassing. And you're a teenager. You're about to turn 16. And as a 16-year-old, I looked like I was 11. You know, I hadn't gone through puberty yet. I was losing to guys that were six inches taller, 50 pounds heavier, and they had these intimidating five o'clock shadows. <laughs> now, what, was your, what was your height and weight back then? Uh, five foot four, 102 pounds as a, as a 15 and a half year old. I'm almost 16 now, so I grew a little bit. Yeah. But here's what's crazy. Two things here. Three years earlier, I was a national champion. I was number one in the country as a 12-year-old. So, you know, put yourself in the position of being the, do- the top dog, number one in the country, and three years later, you're losing to everyone. That's a time when you may quit. That's a time when you say, you know what, this is for the birds. I was, I was the best as a 12-year-old. I'm just free-falling down the wrong direction. I'm just going to make it recreational. I'm just going to focus on other things. I'm just not good enough. And so that was a moment I remember... My stepfather, who he's a military man, a Vietnam veteran, a very principled man, and has been one of my strongest mentors in my life, he pulled me aside one day and, and he said, Jeff, you know, the bad news is you know, you're your own worst enemy. But the good news is that you have the power to create positive change for yourself. And I made a decision. I gave up all the other sports I was doing. I gave up all the other activities, and I doubled down on the thing that I thought could get me a college scholarship. And so I got back to the fundamentals. I refocused on my goals. And within 12 months, I was back into the top five in the country. So to turn it around, at, you know, that was an early stage of adversity. To turn it around that quickly after being so low at that time when everyone was writing me off was a big transformation and a big transition. And just a year later, I was, you know, top 20 in the country. And Coach Dick Gould came calling and said, hey, you know, I've got a half scholarship available for you. You're our third recruit. You're not our top dog. You're our third recruit. We think you can play, you know, maybe six in the lineup for, for us. You know, we'd love to have you. And I accepted a half scholarship to play for my dream school at Stanford University. And wow. I was, it was absolutely, you know, an honor to play for him and also to fulfill that dream of playing for Stanford. Not to be a pro tennis player, not to be a star, but just to be able to be a part of the Stanford culture. Absolutely. And I don't know if I've ever known this about you, but I have to ask. I mean, with the success that you had as a junior, obviously Stanford was your number one, but did you have any other offers from other schools, and did you ever even consider any other school besides Stanford? I did. Great question. I also want to point out that, again, top 100, Stanford All-American, all the accolades, right? I want people to realize that at 15 years old, I was losing first round at nationals. When you're almost 16 and you're losing first round at nationals, you're not playing pro tennis. That is not the track you're on. And I think what I want the listeners to get out of it is that wherever you're at right now, that doesn't mean who you're going to be in the future. You can recreate yourself. You can develop yourself. You can transform yourself into whatever you want to achieve I'm a living example of not really knowing how that was all going to happen and how it transpired. And so 
when I was recruited, I was recruited by Stanford at the last minute because they had two guys turn pro and they had open spots. Thank you, Jonathan Stark and Jared Palmer for turning pro early to give me a chance to go to Stanford. I was recruited by Notre Dame and Northwestern, two academic, strong academic schools. None of the Pac-10 schools came calling. None of the SEC schools came calling. Um, I was not on national team. I was not invited to all the select groups. I was not in the in crowd. And when I look back to all my peers that were on the national team that did all those things, there was only one guy that was ranked higher than me in the world. It was Vince, Vince Spady, got yeah. to top 20 in the world. But everyone else that was touted as the next best thing, um, I did better than. And I think part of it is because I was hungry and because growing up in Colorado, it's not a tennis culture. And so for me to go from Denver, Colorado, which is not a, it's a ski culture, not a tennis culture, and to go to Stanford, that was a big jump for me. And so then I rose to the level of my environment and I kept rising and I kept developing. And I think that's one of my greatest strengths is the curiosity and the willingness to grow and to improve where other people are stagnating. I'm always looking for solutions. I'm always looking for ways to get better. It's just been in my nature. And so I was recruited by these other schools. And I remember walking in to, I had a a high school, my high school tennis coach, who was an English teacher who has since passed away. Tom Bancroft. Okay. Uh, shout wow. out to Tom. He, uh, I remember on the day of the signing period, I had a full scholarship to Notre Dame. I had a half scholarship to Stanford and I walked into his, uh, his classroom and it was the end of the day. No one was around. I sat down. I said, coach Bancroft, I am, I don't know what to do. I, I have this full scholarship to Notre Dame. I've got this half to Stanford. I may never be good enough to play at Stanford. You know, my dad can't afford to pay, to pay for me to go to Stanford, but my stepfather's willing to help me out. And I looked at him, I said, I just don't know what to do. And he looked at me and said, Jeff, it's not close. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, you're going to Stanford. So my English teacher made the decision for me to go to Stanford. He shook me and he said, listen, you're going to Stanford. You're going to go play with the big fish and you're going to take your chances and um, get a little emotional thinking about it. But I think yeah. uh, what, what comes out of that also is what I decided, I actually decided if I could never play tennis again, where would I be happiest? And I think that's important for people to make decisions based on what's going to make them happy. Right. And so I made that decision and it ultimately worked out on the tennis side, but it was, it was a really big decision that actually was made for me, but it, it ultimately came down to where I would be happiest and it, and it worked out for me. That's uh, awesome that you shared that. That's kind of a, a little nugget that a lot of us as, as Colorado tennis guys or, or gals might have not known about you. So I appreciate you sharing that. But I want to stay just briefly again in that in that 15, you know, 16-year-old mindset. And I want you to go back there knowing what you know now. And ironically enough, Jeff, you know, I, I have a son who's 16 years old. He's a cross-country runner, has had tremendous success to this point, and we're, we're very fortunate for that success. And his eyes are on Stanford. And he actually wanted to ask you a question. And I think it's a great time based off of the timeline that we're working through right now for you to uh, take a crack at it. You ready? I'm ready. <laughs> what drove and motivated you to achieve what you did? And what set you apart from your competition? Sure. So... I've done a lot of work on myself and especially in my adult years, trying to understand what drives me. 
And what people would always say, even as a youngster, is that I was the most driven, internally driven um, player that they had ever seen. You know, Dr. Jim Lair, uh, I remember him saying, you know, I've never seen a 12-year-old as cerebral and as thoughtful and analytical and like, like how smart I was on a tennis court. And where that came from was, and, and we're going to go a little deep here, my parents um, divorced when I was four. And I think when we have, when we're young and we have trauma, if you will, maybe it's a strong word, but trauma or adverse childhood adverse events, when you have a divorce in this case or a death or something that happens, you know, as a child, you make the decision on how to interpret that. And what I think I did was, okay, my dad's not around. Great dad, by the way. He's awesome. I want to shout out to him. Stepfather's amazing. My mother's amazing. Rock solid. But he's not around, and I want to be approved of. I want to be loved. Uh, and so for me, that was to be the best. Right. So I'm not saying it's the healthiest thing to do to go that route, but it's certainly healthier than getting into trouble. You know, some kids get into trouble as a way to kind of lash out or kind of share that. So for me, it was, okay, my dad's not around. My mom's doing the best she can. I want to be known and and kind of revered. So I'm just going to be the best. Yeah. So I think it came from that early on, just this drive, this will to be the best. I hated losing. I used to cry when I lost in anything that I did. So I think you really have to feel the pain of losing to want to be the best. It's got to really eat at you. So that's where it started. And then, you know, early success. And I think also my, my father, my stepfather wrote me a poem when I was 12 years old. It's called a champion's poem. And um, maybe we can get it in the show notes. Yeah. But the champion's poem, uh, I used to read it from 12 years old up until, you know, through my pro career. It was all about what it is to be a champion. You know, a chan champion stands tall with his head high. You know, he wins with class. He sometimes loses, but he does so with class. Um, and it was all about how I was a champion. So imagine you're 12 years old and your stepfather gives you this poem and you're reading this poem every day. You're brainwashing. I was brainwashing myself in a positive way. A positive affirmation. That I was a champion. Yeah. That I did it with class. I did it with integrity. And isn't it crazy that 10 months after I got that champion's poem, I won my only national championship at age 12 as a gold ball. Mm. And throughout my junior career, I won five sportsmanship awards in the at the national level. And I just think I just brainwashed myself and my family was big on that. Integrity, class, character, perseverance, bounce back, never quit. It was ingrained in me. So that's how it all happened. That's how I got the drive. What you unpack there is huge is, is the fact that we see it today all the time, Jeff, is we see a lot of negative talk. We see a lot of self-sabotage and this positive champion's poem really ignited you to, you know, to lead to where you wanted to, to go. And I mean, let's face it based off of the, the statistic and I don't know what it is today, but last year, you know, to, to play division one college tennis, you got to be, you know, one of the top 1.6% players in the country when it comes to everyone who's competing at that level. So I know that uh, drive and determination can sometimes be deemed as unhealthy in a sense, which I believe you experienced a little bit, but maybe sometimes necessary as well to achieve the level that you did. And I think you answered 
mm. both of those questions really well. And I think it's a great segue into flashing back forward to you had your success in the 12s. You, you had to eat some crow in your junior career. You had a tremendous mentor with your coach, an English teacher, and you, you, you took that chance at Stanford. And I would love to hear a little bit more about you know, your serve was, was legendary. I had a great serve as well. I wish mine was left-handed, but we can't win them all. But, uh, you know, from there, you know, I think you really had another transformational moment. And can you maybe take us back to that college serve moment? Yeah. So I go to Stanford, and I'm like a kid in a candy store. I'm playing, you know, in, in, I'm playing am amongst greatness. All the past players, the pro players, John McEnroe, Patrick McEnroe, Dan Goldie, Derek Rostagno, Jonathan Stark, Alex O'Brien. I mean, the list goes on. Guys that were number one in the world in doubles, top 10 in the world. So I am on hallowed ground playing for the, the greatest college tennis coach of all time, who also, also taught me many leadership lessons, just like my stepfather did. And, you know, he helped me to understand that, I could play more aggressive, that I could get to the net, that I could find different ways to maximize my strengths. But the interesting story behind my college career is that my freshman year, I went 22 and four playing five singles. So they put me at five singles. I was a little scrapper. I had a very average to weak serve, but I found ways to win. Mm. So I think that was also one of my strengths is that I found ways to win. Speaking to the earlier st stuff we talked about, about playing smart and and being mentally tough and composed out on the court. I was light years ahead of people in, the, in, that, in that way and then was able to bounce back from the adversity. So my freshman year finishes, I've got this terrible serve. I can't even break 100 miles an hour. I mean, imagine that. I'm hitting a you know, 98-mile-an-hour serve, spinning them in, and then <laughs> I'm playing in the Pac-10 against UCLA and USC at home and away, and I'm 22-4. and four. So clearly I was doing a lot of things right, but the serve wasn't happening. I go play these pro tournaments, these satellites. They're the lowest level of pro tourna tournaments, like single A baseball. And I'm not even getting out of the qualifying round. So again, I'm now I'm 19 years old. I've grown a little bit, but I can't even get one ATP point as a 19 year old. We got 19 year olds that are number one in the world right now, right. Carlos Alcaraz, right? Yeah. So again, give you guys some reference of like, and gals that are listening, reference that I'm not going to be top 100 in the world someday. I'm not going to play at Wimbledon or the U.S. Open on this track. I'm going to be a nice little college player, and then I'm going to go get a nice job after I graduate from Stanford. So I'm losing these matches, and I said, enough is enough. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And so I stole that quote from Albert Einstein and probably others that have used it. So instead of continuing to play tournaments with the herd of college tennis players, and you know about the herd, everyone just goes from tournament to tournament yeah. and nothing ever changes. Right. I go home to Denver. I go home alone to Denver. I start watching Wimbledon. There's this guy on the tube. His name's Goran Ivanisevich. He's <laughs> a lefty serving 125 miles an hour, acing people at Wimbledon. I said, wow, I really like his serve. Tomorrow, I'm going to go to the Denver Tennis Club with my hopper of balls. And I'm going to experiment, and I'm going to try to copy his motion. So one of the big breakthroughs I had with my development and around personal development and growth is the power of modeling. Tony Robbins talks about it a lot. If you can model the people that you want to be in anything, sports, business, life, relationships, model who you want to be. Well, I wanted to be Goron with his serve. That's awesome. So I go out, and I model his serve, and I've got this 
archer, crazy archer motion. And literally almost overnight, something clicked. I added 20 miles an hour to my serve. Now, granted, I probably grew three inches. I gained 20 pounds. That probably helped. But something about his motion, something about the trajectory of the, the way I launched my body in the court was different. And so I go back to Stanford and I show up my sophomore year and Coach Gould and Coach Whitlinger, the assistant, looked at me like, what the heck happened to you? Literally, they were in shock. The players were in shock. And so Coach Gould looked at me and he said, well, you're not playing five this year. So he put me at number two in the lineup and I excelled at number two and I won most of my matches and I, be, I started to emerge as kind of the young leader of the team all because of my serve. So think about how that applies to your life. I always like to bring it back. It's not about me. It's about what does this lesson apply to you as you're listening to this? So think about one big change you could make in your life, one little aspect that would change your entire life. And that's what happened. When I changed my serve, my life changed. The trajectory of my life changed. My junior and senior year, I played number one singles. I was elected team captain. My junior year, we had an undefeated season. It was the one of three undefeated seasons that Coach Gould had. He won 17 national titles. And so that was pretty special to be a part of that team, be a leader of that team. <clears throat> and so really, I just blossomed in college. And it was mainly because of, you know, my work ethic, the mental side of things, and then just developing this really big game. I went from being a scrapper to a very aggressive, explosive player. I grew into my game. And so I graduate from Stanford, got the degree in economics, still had no clue what I want to do when I, when I, when I, what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I took my sights to the pro tour. And in my first year on the tour, I shot up like a rocket ship from 800 to 140 in the world in 12 months. I was on my way to the top 100, on my way hopefully to the top 50 when I played Michael Chang. Ah. And so after the Michael Chang match, I signed with an agent the next day. I remember sitting in a hotel room in New York and everyone thought I was like one of the next it American players. My career was going like this. And, you know, life does funny things to you when you think your life is going to go a certain way. Mm. You know, God has the universe, God, whatever you believe in has a plan and has its own path that it wants you to go on. And so three months after my match with Chang, I was playing a pickup basketball game at Greenwood Athletic Club and I came down for a rebound and I felt a sharp pain in my ankle. And I remember I went on an eight-month odyssey to try to figure out why the ankle pain wasn't going away. And eventually I had surgery on my ankle. So I went from being the, the it kid, the it young American coming from Colorado out of nowhere at 23 years old to being on the shelf in my parents' basement, down and depressed, wondering if I would ever play again, if I could ever come back to the pro tour. And then I made this comeback six months after I hurt my ankle and had surgery. I played my first tournament in Miami at the Erickson Open, which is now the Miami Open. I was playing Daniel Nestor, who was number one in the world in doubles. I beat him, but the problem is that I felt a click in the back of my knee. For six weeks, it went misdiagnosed, and I finally had knee surgery. So by, before the age of 25, I had two surgeries. And you know all about pain. You know all about injuries, Coleman. Yeah. You know, when you have two injuries before the age of 25, that's not a good sign that you're on a track to continue your pro career. And so that was another defining moment. You know, if you look at my defining moment at 15, and then this defining moment of transforming my serve and going on and doing great things in college, and now this defining moment 
of my body completely breaking down, you know, what was I going to do? So I'll stop there. Yeah. You may have some follow-up, but I can also continue on on what happened. But I'll, I'll open the loop and create some no, suspense no. about what happens next. Absolutely. No, I mean, it's just, uh, it's, it's mesmerizing to, to listen to success, setback, success, setback, right? And I've always been told that success, the Winston Churchill quote, it's, you know, failing while maintaining your enthusiasm and continuing to move forward. Right. And there's so much awesome nuggets to unpack from what you said for, for each and every person listening, because, you know, I've said it before in previous podcasts, I believe you're a byproduct of the two to six people that you hang around with the most. Right. And, and making sure that you're finding that support, because as you've mentioned, it's so hard to, to do these things on your own. And then, most importantly is, is figuring out ways to, you know, encourage yourself. I mean, you know, I, I know I keep going back to positive affirmations, but I believe that's one of the number one things. And there's going to be a lot of things that you're going to share here later on about ways that we can self-assess way that we, ways that we can prevent self-sabotage and maintain our alignment. And that's one thing that I've always appreciated about you, Jeff, through, the, the teachings that you've given me is you've really made me focus on being a student of the game and learning the deep work aspect of understanding myself because, you know, I can't even imagine in 97 when you're playing Chang and having all those people there watching you. I mean, it is, it is a whole lot of, of you against Chang, but yes, you against yourself and for you to, have all of those, you know, takeaways of, of self-development and how much you've grown from that moment, I think is uh, tremendous and injuries. Yes. Uh, you know, it's, it's inevitable and it's amazing to see what some of these young tennis players are doing today. But even as coaches, we see so many kids getting injured sooner rather than later because of the demand of the game. I mean, it's such a, a physical game in, in 2023. And, you know, I think that as you're going to share here, the, the work that you put in to understand your body and kind of go on this next phase after that knee surgery. Um, I'd love for you to, to tell us where you had some breakthroughs in becoming, you know, a student of the game again and a student of your body again for yourself. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm reeling. I'm 25 years old. I've got these two surgeries. I've lost my ranking. I'm going to have to start over again. I'm 600 or 700 in the world and I'm starting over at age 26 and and what I did when I had the ankle surgery I remember the doctor saying you've lost all of your ankle mobility in your right ankle and that was from repeated sprains ankle sprains in college that I would just strap on an ankle brace and didn't do the the full rehab didn't get the range of motion back and so I developed bone spurs in the ankle and then and then what I've learned you know I've studied the human body very deeply. I've worked with some of the best in the world. And what I've learned, which I wish I would have known, you know, 30 years ago, but I know now is we have to take care of our bodies in a, in a specific way. It's not just random. And, you know, we lose, we first, we lose function in our feet and our ankles. We lose the ability to use our hips the right way, our spine. Like there's just so much that goes into it. And fortunately now I understand it now that I'm close to 50 years old, I can do it for the next, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. But 
really understanding the human body at a deep level. So I, I went on a journey of performance. So I uh, went to my first yoga class when I was 24. I started eating organic food before it was considered cool. Uh, <laughs> I started juicing green vegetable juices before uh, when, you know anyone even did that stuff. I was going to uh, alfalfas uh, and wild oats. Now Whole Foods bought wild oats. So just to give you an idea of like before Whole Foods was cool, I was going to the health food stores. You're an OG. Before that. I was an OG, <laughs> honestly. Like it, it sounds maybe a little cocky, but like yeah. I've always been kind of a trend center, kind of frontier, out of the box, maybe felt a little misunderstood, a little bit of an introvert, like people aren't going to get me type of thing because I've just kind of gone really deep down the rabbit holes of, of performance. And I think you have to do that if you really want to be kind of different and unique. You have to be willing to test convention to test the conventional rules out there, to challenge it, to question it. You don't have to be a jerk about it, but you can just question it. And so I started questioning traditional ways of rehabbing, traditional ways of thinking, traditional ways of moving the body. So, you know, I did yoga, I did Tai Chi, I did Qigong, I did crazy stretching routines that you're familiar with. Yes. Uh, I sent you to Monkey Bar Gym yes. years ago. Like Aishin's Yoga, yes. Yeah, so... so I, I went deep down that rabbit hole and because of it, you know, I learned how to serve better. I was serving when I, when I was 32 years old, I hit 136 miles an hour on the gun at the BMP Paribas open in a qualifying match against Ramon Delgado. I wasn't serving 136 when I was 24 years old, but I was when I was 32. Wow. And it's because I learned about my body and I changed equipment and I upgraded my technique. I did a lot of different things, but I studied biomechanics. I studied spirituality, mindset, nutrition. I tried the dumbest. I just shouldn't say dumbest. I tried <laughs> all kinds of nutritional programs that did not work. So I think through my failures and through my willingness to experiment to a fault, you know, I messed up a lot, but I also learned. And so when I was 30 years old, I had learned how to serve better, return better, hit my forehand better, move better. Lots of things improved. And I broke the top hundred in the world for the first time at the age of 30. Now, the irony is that as soon as I did it, and now I was main draw into Wimbledon and all the big events in the summer, the irony is that I was having problems with my feet and I had plantar fasciitis that whole summer. So honestly, when I look back on my career, I wasn't able to fully capitalize on consistent health week in and week out. And again, if I were to train anybody now full-time, I'd say, listen, your feet and your ankles are going to be ridiculous. Yeah. And even at 30, I still didn't figure out my feet. Right. And, um, fortunately now, again, I understand all of that. So anyway, my journey, my transformation came around of my body and, and my performance came around studying human performance and going deep. So I've been studying human performance for 25 years plus at a deep level and really like exploring, you know, meditation and, um, you know, heart math, which we're going to talk about yeah. and, and ways of thinking and language patterns. Yeah. You know, when I listen to someone speak, I know very early on if it's going to happen for them or not. Or right. I know very early on when I hear them talk about their tennis or their life, I'm like, oh, that's going to be, that could be, that area could be challenging. You know, when I hear someone say, I can't serve or I'm not very good or I always lose to this person or I can never be in a healthy relationship. When I hear the language, that gives me a window into the mind and soul of a person. And so it's very important to become self-aware, to really become self-aware of, to know thyself. 
Absolutely. But that's my mission is to really know myself so that when I'm coaching and I'm out there speaking, I can deliver a message that impacts people and that they feel, you know, in their mind and their heart and in their soul. Yeah, it's uh, interesting because one thing you've instilled in me as a coach is when I'm watching players compete at the high school level, coaches ask me all the time why I'm looking down and all I'm doing is looking at players' feet. Are you balanced? I almost ask that question hundred times at practices is draw a circle around yourself. And if you can maintain the balance of your shot and that circle on each and every stroke, the, the, the stroke and the, and the, and the ball will, will find where it needs to go. And yes, injury prevention. And you are absolutely the reason why my wife and I love to eat at true food kitchen and drink alkaline water and health and nutrition has been a huge, impact on on my kids too to to you know set them up for you know hopefully longevity and to protect their body as they continue to grow and you know that's a uh, really neat that you got to share that with the listeners and I know how much work you put into that and the resources you put in so very powerful you know you have this tremendous career Jeff coming back yet again and developing your serve and you know at age 30 you're one of the top hundred guys in the world and you really kind of made a another another mountaintop per se you know as you mentioned sometimes like when you sat with your agent you sit down and you think life is gonna take you one way and then it takes you another you opened today's podcast with the, the pancake house and you know to bring listeners up to speed you and I got to see each other again you know, it's been it's been a few years since we've get a chance to, to sit down and we got to catch up at that pancake house and we'll deeply remember that for the rest of my life and we'll certainly whether it's this podcast or keeping my fingers crossed for podcast number two when the time's right to, to dig deeper on that but I would love to hear a little bit about why you had to leave the tour and you know, obviously your path as a coach and what you did to try to save your brother's life. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're going to talk about my brother. And first, you know, I want, I hope that we have a little time at the end where I can actually, you know, share some nuggets around my teachings because I've been weaving it in throughout with, with these stories, you know, a lot of storytelling right now, but I do want to drill into some things when we get to the other side of my brother and his story and my story and how we're intertwined. But one thing I want to share, this idea about breaking the top hundred, it's, it's very much related to, you know, thank God I didn't embarrass myself against Chang. You know, I think my set point w with my ranking was a hundred. You know, if it was 50, I probably would have made it. If it was 20, when I say set point, I'm talking about the deep core belief, the unconscious subconscious beliefs that I had. And I think, you know, we're all, we're all human beings and we all have a mind, and we all have a body, and what happens is we store these beliefs in our body, and for me, there was a part of me that was always the little kid from Colorado that wasn't good enough, mm. and isn't that crazy, you know, to maybe be arguably the best player that's ever come out of here, be 
ranking wise, right? I mean, there's guys now playing a lot better than I am because I don't really play a lot as much <laughs> these days. But even if I did, there's a lot of great players out there. But the ranking and the results, we could probably say that I'm one of the best or the best. But isn't it funny that 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 I achieved all these things, but I still had a ceiling. I still had unconscious beliefs that can I really beat Michael Chang? Because there were a number of moments, number of times in my career where I was playing guys in the top 10 in the world. I was kicking their butts for an hour and a half. And then the level would drop three to 5% and three to 5% at that level is enough to lose. Mm. So, you know, I'm pretty, I guess I'm pretty hard on myself in that I could have done a lot better. Um, but I see now that it was, it was my beliefs and then my beliefs dictated my actions and my habits and not surrounding myself maybe with the right people and the right coaches and the people that could take me to the top 20 playing small, you know, a lot of that actually kept me from getting to that next level. So I wanted to just to share that, that again, this kind of this extraordinary, ordinary concept that we are all extraordinary in our own way. We all have special gifts to share with the world we need to tap into that gift. And we're also yes. ordinary in that we're all together with these limiting beliefs. Yes. And we must destroy them. We must find ways to break them down and say, I'm creating a new way. I'm, cr- I'm not going to play from fear. I'm going to play from abundance. So play life from abundance, play career from abundance. So uh, 30 years old, I get to the top 100. And the next couple of years were challenging. Uh, because I had injuries and my ranking was still kind of dropping and up and down. And I got to 32, 33 years old, questioning my purpose. You know, you've been playing on the tour for 11 years and you're like, what the heck what am I doing with my life? Like everyone else has kind of moved on. You know, the guys that are 33 that are still playing, they're doing really well. So if you're 200 in the world, you're not really making a living, you're struggling, you don't have a team, you spend a lot of time alone. And I remember there was a time when I just didn't want to get on plane. I didn't want to go play the tournaments anymore, which I knew that was a sign that things were off because I usually loved getting on planes to go test myself. Mm. But I was starting to feel burned out. I was feeling discouraged. And I remember going to visit my father, who was my first coach. He was a Division One player, played at your alma mater, University of Northern Colorado, yes. Greeley, played number one for them. That's right. So my dad is um, was a teaching pro and got me started. And he was living in Florida at the time with his second family with my stepmother and my three um, siblings and my brother, Eric, 17 years younger. I went to go visit and I remember I'm 33, 34 years old, December 30th, 2007. I walk into his bedroom and as a 17 year old, he's a senior in high school. He's laying on the floor in the morning, um, sprawled out on the floor, passed out, uh, foamy substance, white substance coming out of his mouth and he was, you know, overtaken by a cocktail of drugs. Mm. And my brother had a serious addiction issue at 17 years old. And in that moment, uh, you channel the thousands of tennis matches that you've played your whole life where you, where you have to stay focused and you can't let emotions, you have to stay focused, you have to stay on track, you have to bounce back. And that's what I did. I rushed him to the hospital. I stayed calm. Uh, stayed cool, collected, you know, again, it's probably one of my strengths. I stay pretty calm in the face of fire. And, um, you know, we, I, I made the decision in that moment, another defining moment in my life. I made the decision that my professional tennis career was over. I made the decision that I was going to help my brother. Mm. And 
I didn't even, I didn't even deliberate on it. When you know, you know. Yeah. I knew in that moment. So uh, I borrowed $36,000 that I didn't have, put them in rehab. I moved to Alabama for three months to try to go visit him in Louisiana where he was in rehab. And after a couple weeks in Alabama, I realized I was kind of depressed. I didn't really like it there. <laughs> so I called a couple friends in Colorado and called my parents, and I said, I'm, I'm a coach now. That's what I do. I teach tennis. <laughs> yep. So I drove home to Denver, and um, you know, within three months, I was kind of the people were bringing, parents were bringing their kids to me, and I was starting to coach. And what I realized, you know, the greatest gift that my brother gave me um, through his addiction in that moment was the gift of coaching. And um, he kind of forced my hand. I was having a hard time quitting pro tennis, giving up the dream. Mm. And when I made that decision because of him, there wasn't any regret. There wasn't any remorse. There wasn't any frustration on him. It was actually like, wow. In the first month of coaching, I was like, I love this. I was born to coach. I wish someone would have taught me this sooner <laughs> because I probably would have quit the pro tour a lot sooner. So I realized I loved, I loved coaching and I took all of my knowledge, the wisdom. And, and I think that's what made me a decent coach at 33 years old, even though I had never coached before, because I had essentially coached myself. I had learned communication styles. I had learned what I didn't like as a player from other coaches that yeah. coach from a negative perspective. So I was always very conscious of my language and trying to distill it down and break it up into pieces and frameworks. And I think that's what, the reason I played pro tennis, one of the reasons was to learn that, to be able to be able to pass it on. You, As you know, many players, great players, don't know how to communicate or help right. other players. And I was like, that is not going to be me. Yep. I will be the coach that someone can come to me and I will find an answer for them or help them find an answer. And so, yeah, I started coaching and I started working with all these kids and that's how we met. Yep. And, and you came to my court and you were curious and you wanted to learn and it's very rare to have other coaches go work with other coaches, to be open-minded, to drop the ego. And I always wondered when I moved back to Colorado, uh, why don't more guys come pick my brain? I mean, I just was out on the tour for 11 years, seeing the best in the world, studying them, and you did. And that's how we started our friendship and our relationship, and we worked together for a time. Yeah. And uh, from that, I started coaching these players, and we start. we had these young kids that were doing all these crazy footwork patterns and, and volleying and serving with good technique. And I remember people would come to me from Colorado junior tournaments and say, well, we know which kid plays for Salzenstein because they literally have the, the signature look, you know, the technique and whatever. Yeah. But pretty early on, I got the bug to like want to do something bigger than just coaching. And that's when I started studying online marketing and I started making videos to help with instruction. And that's what evolved into the tennis evolution platform where we've been able to touch millions of people through the YouTube platform and through our online platform. But I really wanted to help the masses with high level tennis instruction. So I guess you could say I was one of the OGs of online tennis instruction. Yep. So really I just um, always kind of want to be on the cutting edge, always want to be a pioneer. And I'm humbled that, you know, God and the universe kind of gave me this platform, gave me this pursuit to want to be this, this curious to want to learn, because I think that's what life's about is learning and growing. It's not about how much money you make. It's not about your results at the end of the day. It's about, it's about growing, learning and how you can impact others. Yeah. It's a, 
that moment when we got to reconnect a few months back, I remember you walking in and I could tell that you were tired and you had a lot on your mind. And we never thought in that moment that we would have that same connection of addiction. You know, my, uh, my mom passed away when I was 20, uh, went to four rehabs. When I was 16 years old, I took her to her first rehab and got to experience a lot of those kind of coaching moments young as a, as a kid, right? Trying to help my mom get sober. And at that point, I was pretty young in my tennis career, but I never thought that those moments of, of learning how to handle you know, the chaos with my mom would help me learn how to handle moments of chaos on the court. It absolutely segued into the moments that I have and and still have today as a coach, allowing, you know, kids to become the best version of themselves, not necessarily because of forehands and backhands, but because of like true belief and, you know, kind of uncovering that why and, a why can overcome anyhow, Simon Sinek, and just uh, is, is an incredible parallel, Jeff, to know that we've connected in that way, and and it's been pretty recent with your brother, and I'll I'll never forget, uh, you know, hearing the news that that he passed away, and the incredible eulogy that you wrote about him to commemorate your relationship and the love that you had for one another. It reminded me a lot of a eulogy that I actually typed up when my mom passed and I got to share it actually at her commemorative service. She was a flight attendant for United Airlines. So she had all of these relationships all over the country of, of stewardess and, and folks that work for the airline. So when we did her service, she had almost 500 employees show up and you could just see that deep love and respect based off of kind of walking through what, you know, was something that was pretty challenging in my life. But, you know, it breaks my heart to know that, that your brother just had a hard time with finding a way to overcome addiction and it's you know I believe for a, a, another conversation that uh, we can definitely tackle into more but I don't find it a coincidence at all Jeff that we were back aligned in a way that we had no idea even over all the years that we've known each other that we had that similarity and it led to more conversation about you know kind of what you're looking to do in the next chapter of your life. And tennis evolution was, as you mentioned, a piece that I believe you're proud of. I know you put a lot of, a lot of work into that and you've impacted a lot of people's tennis games, but you wanted to do more. Can you walk us through where you're at today with your executive coaching and what you've been dabbling into as a, as a public speaker? Sure. So I want to touch on, thanks for acknowledging my brother and sharing your story about your mother. I want to touch on, you know, for you're listening here, and I just told the story about how I 
saw him on the floor and I got him into rehab. I moved back to Denver to start coaching. And then my brother ultimately came to live with me for a short stint before he went back to Florida. And, you know, there is a long story from 17 until 32 or 30, 32 years old when he recently passed away. And you're probably listening going, oh my gosh, what happened? Right. And a lot happened. Okay. I can tell you that there were times when we weren't in contact. Um, my brother ended up going to prison. My brother got out of prison and transformed his life. Um, I was the, um, I was the best friend. I was the mentor. I was the coach. I was the biggest fan. Uh, I was his corner man. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and so I went, I went on a journey with him and it, a, a lot of it was magical. What I want to, and again, if we do a, a second episode in six months or 12 months or whenever, whenever it happens, I would like to do that because I think we should unpack more of his story. Yeah. But what I want to leave people with before I talk about kind of what I'm up to is my brother was at the lowest of the lows much lower than I've ever been in my life in tennis. Mm. And I watched him transform in prison. I watched him transform out of prison to the point where he got his own TED Talk and yeah. he built um, a multiple six-figure business in under 18 months. Yeah, I'll make sure to include that too in the, in the notes. And, uh, my, I mean, my brother was my hero. Yeah. I was so impressed with how he changed his life yeah. you know not many people do what he did and so what i tell people and by the way as i'm um tearing up and crying here i yeah. want everyone to l listening to know that i'm okay all right so i am okay uh I've, I've done plenty of work i know how to show my emotions so you guys can all feel and gals can feel good that i am okay i'm feeling really good really strong and Bring Jeff, remember back. though, remember what you, you <laughs> told me the day that we reconnected is yeah. one of the most masculine things you can do <laughs> as a man is be emotional. And that's where I'm so appreciative of our relationship is you've allowed me to have that same comfort. It's okay for things to hurt. It's okay for things to be tough. And to express those things. Yep. And Thanks. there's so many tools that you've instilled in me and, and many of your students with how to, you know, find a way to, to maintain alignment, even in the most challenging of times. But I just wanted to make sure that you knew how important that vulnerability piece was and how much it means to me and our listeners that, you're a human being, you know, you've done a lot of tremendous things and that connection with your brother is, is forever. So I'm grateful for you sharing that. Thank you. You know, yeah, I mean, I, I pulled it together here, but I, that's just who I am, right? I'm going to, I'm going to, it's, if it's coming up, it's coming up. But what I want to let everyone know is number one, I'm okay. Number two, you know, my brother passed away recently at the time of, this and I want everyone to know that it was the single greatest transformation I ever saw in my life and he helped 
so many people with his story and he was so inspiring when he had his life together. He was so inspiring and he inspired people to grow and to change. And so that obviously inspires me, right? And, you know, when you think about ways that you can have someone live through you or carry on the message, that really feeds into what I'm doing next. So I built Tennis Evolution. We helped a lot of people help them with their serve and their forehands and their mental game and really have become one of the probably more recognized coaches in the world because of the platform. Yes. Um, but for a while now, I have felt uh, like there was something more and there's a bigger purpose. I think you can hear in my words and my message today, there's something deeper than just teaching serves and forehands. And so I've been doing performance coaching for the last six years, seven years, one-on-one mindset coaching with with athletes. And in the last couple of years, I've really expanded into executive coaching. So I've taken all the principles and the strategies that I learned as an athlete and as a coach. And I'm saying, listen, this can be transferred into any company. This can be transferred into any corporation. This can be transferred to any CEO, leader, manager. All the skills that we're talking about apply. It's all fair game. The inner game of tennis, you know, Tennis is life. Life is tennis. And so being able to communicate, having the right mindset, taking care of your body, taking care of your mind, taking care of your spirit, your emotions, that's all performance. And so that is my calling. That is what I'm aligned to. That is my genius. Uh, That is my skill set. You know, I was working with a top leader locally that runs a top financial firm in town. And we just finished a two-year engagement together one-on-one for two years and I designed customized program for me and it's kind of our exit we're I mean we're great friends now but we needed to take a break and um at the end of it he just said no one has ever poured into me like you have Mm. and for me that's just natural that's just what I do I'm like I'm gonna give my best to this man and I'm gonna pour into him and I'm gonna help him grow and shift and change and however wherever he wants to go with this and so that's what I'm committed to and in the last six months started speaking and uh, got an opportunity to speak uh, in front of eight CEOs that run companies between 200 million and $1.2 billion. And I walk in this hotel room and this executive coach gave me an opportunity to do this fireside chat around performance and purpose. And I remember him saying to me, he's like, listen, these guys are CEOs and they're running these big companies, but they have imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. So don't think that they have it all together. (laughs) And so, you know, it's helpful to know that we don't all have it together, even if we're in the top position. And sometimes people in the top positions actually are bigger, have bigger challenges than the people that don't, right? And so we're all human. We're all in this, this human condition. We're all in this together. So I spoke and I got, they, they enjoyed the message and that has expanded to speaking to their leadership teams. And so, um, I'm getting paid to speak, right? And, um, so now, and then with my brother, he was a great orator, a great speaker. I always thought we were going to be on stages together. Mm. And so now we are going to be on stages right. together. And the reason we're going to be on stages together is because I'm bringing his message forward. I'm bringing his message with me. His message is a part of my keynote. It's intertwined. You know, I was the, I was the golden ch- child in the family. He was the black sheep. And yet when we both were on the same page, when we both transformed, or we both kept focusing on growth and change, our messages were very similar. Yeah. So I carry his, his message on, and that's what we're doing. So my commitment is to become 
an incredible keynote speaker and performer and, and orator to be able to share the things we've talked about today and to help people give a framework so that they can improve their physical, mental, and emotional health. And there are tangible things that you can do that work. And I've distilled it down and I have a method and it, and it helps people. And I'm grateful to have the opportunity to have the platform. So that's what we're up to. <laughs> and uh, I know when we spoke, I think, you know, I put the seed in your, yep. in your head to become a speaker yep. and look at you, you're speaking, you've got a podcast. This is a, this is a speaking stage. We're on stage right now. Yes. And so you're doing it too, you know, and you know, we all, we all have a message and, you know, if there's one thing I can leave the listeners with today is we all have a message. We all have a genius yeah. and we, and we, and we want to keep searching for how to find that meaning and that purpose so that we can help eat others. And, uh, it can be a lot of different things. Um, so anyway, I didn't get a chance to really talk about the principles today, but I know we did unpack a lot and yeah, no, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, an introduction to, to some of the breathing techniques and, you know, just, you know, helpful tips is uh, a great piece for us to, to have in that in that second podcast. And, you know, just having you talk through that again, I'm, I'm looking up at this this picture that we started out with, right, of, of that smile. And to me, that is what has and always will be the most important part of your life is, is your family and that connection with your brother and what you shared about how you're going to pay it forward. As I mentioned to the listeners, I'm going to have listened to Eric's Ted talk numerous times from prison to prosperity and super impactful, super motivating, super encouraging. And you're absolutely right, Jeff. The reason why these microphones are in front of us is the, the mission that you're trying to pay forward with your brother has inspired me to ignite the B2B project and to do things that I know need to be done. And I have the ability to, to speak. It's a gift of mine. And I'm just excited to share with the world uh, together, Jeff, the, <laughs> the good news. And there are ways to continue to persevere and overcome despite any circumstance. So as we wrap up real quick, I, I just have a quick logistics question for you for folks that are interested in executive coaching. How can they reach you? How can they inquire about your services? Yeah. So I'll leave you all with just a couple of quick tips as we segue into how people can get in touch with me if they'd like. The first is watch your thoughts. So just start becoming aware of your thoughts. You don't have to be Pollyanna positive, but do your best to avoid negativity. And yeah. again, if, if I come back again, I'll go deeper into stories and, and the research and, and why, but avoid negativity and complaining at all costs. So at least get to neutral. Um, that's number one. Number two is you want to be able to learn how to emotionally regulate yourself. So when you have emotions like frustration, anger, worry, fear, anxiety, when all of that comes up, you need a way to be able to regulate yourself. And there are some simple breathing techniques and tools that's, that are based on over 30 years of research, numerous peer-reviewed studies. If you can focus on breathing through your chest area or your heart area, a, a form of meditation, if you will, we won't call it that. It's a breathing technique. 
but really watch your emotions. So watch your thoughts and watch your emotions. That's just something I'll leave you all with today just to give you a little taste test. We can go a lot deeper future. In terms of getting in touch with me, my website is jeffsalzenstein.com. And uh, that's obviously a mouthful, but I'll trust that you can find the correct spelling of Salzenstein. Uh, you can email me at jeff at jeffsalzenstein.com. And, you know, in the spirit of just being human and just being real, I'm going to give my cell phone number out. So, you know, one of the things that I am very adamant about is I don't think anybody should suffer. And I don't think anyone should suffer. Well, it's okay to suffer, but don't suffer in silence. Mm. So, so there's a lot of people out there that are suffering that don't feel like they have anyone to talk to. They can't reach out to anyone. They're suffering in silence. And I don't want people to suffer. My brother suffered in silence and ultimately it cost him his life. And I just want, uh, I just want people to be able to reach out to me if they resonate with this message, if they'd like me to come speak to their school or their, or their business or their company, or if they just want to have a conversation about how I might be able to help. Uh, my number is 303-882-9028. You can text me there and um, I'll trust that you will text, text appropriately and, <laughs> and we'll have a, a normal exchange. But uh, yeah, that's how you can get in touch with me. I think you all can tell, and Coleman, you can tell I'm passionate about this message, this work, uh, being able to inspire through my story, through being authentic and real, and just really just help a lot of people that in this post-pandemic world, a lot of people are struggling. Mental health challenges, emotional health challenges are on the rise uh, for various reasons. And, you know, I, I like to think, you know, Coleman, you and I are in a pretty good place with all this, so we can help yeah. people. We have a platform we have the tools, we have the techniques. And so if I can help, I'm going to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Jeff, uh, I can't thank you enough for your time today on the BTB project listeners. This is just the beginning. There's so much more content and opportunity to align, to, um, to change your life. And we're all in this together. I'm proud of each and every one of you. Impossible is nothing. And I look forward to the next episode. Take care. Thanks for